the first three verses. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And then down in verse 12, and this is where we take the title of the lesson from. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for another opportunity to study your word, speak to all of our hearts, and Lord, just give us clarity, edify us, encourage us, give us a grateful attitude for the sacrifice that your son made for each one of us when he died in our place on the cross. We are enjoying going through this lovely book. So we Pray for ears to hear tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We finished chapter 9 talking about the fact that it's appointed for everyone to die at least one time. and That's important to know. We are people that cannot escape that. Romans is very plain that death and sin are connected. Wherever sin is, there is death. And since Adam and Eve's transgression... Sin has come to everyone in the human race, and that is why everyone passes away. And short of the Lord returning, we all are going to go by way of the grave. It's not a thing that's always so bad to think about if we remember that we who are believers, as the scripture says, we don't grieve as others who have no hope. So every time you pass by a graveyard, if the hundreds and thousands of people that are in those graves, if they could just sit up and talk to you, they, they'd have a very, uh, very simple statement they'd make in chorus, and that would be that, as you are, I was, but as I am, you will be. So we all, one day, are going to pass away. And this is why Paul concludes chapter 9, verse 28, speaking about the hope that we have in looking for Jesus to appear without sin unto salvation. Because when he returns and he appears, eternal life is going to come with him. We're certainly going to be with him as we understand from the book of Revelation. Saints pass away and they go to heaven. Well, then in chapter 10, verse 1, he now begins to talk about why these sacrifices under the old covenant were not as good as the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone in the Old Testament had to provide some kind of sacrifice for their family. Now, if you can imagine that each man and woman, they were conscious of their guilt, but anxious for their pardon. They wanted to be free of the burden of the shame of being sinners. And according to Scripture, they had to find whether it was some kind of a goat, a lamb, a bullock, they had to bring this unblemished animal 
to the tabernacle or temple and then lay their hands on the head of that animal and figuratively they are transferring sins that are upon them and placing them upon the animal. So that the scripture in the Old Testament says that at that point the priest would then receive that animal from that head of the family, take a knife, take the life of that animal who is without blemish, without spot, without fault or defect. And that innocent victim then becomes the, the replacement for the one who should have died. Now in 1 John we run into the, the, the big word propitiation. And sometimes other translations will say expiation. Which is simply to say that the wrath of God that should have come upon the individual sinner was laid upon someone else. And that's what Christ did for us. He died on the cross in our place and received the judgment that should have come to us. He was without defect, without blemish, without any kind of sin. And by placing our trust in his shed blood, we in effect lay hands on his head and lay our sins upon him and he happily bears them. And that's a wonderful thing. So Hebrews 10 verse 1 says that these Old Testament sacrifices were nothing more than a shadow. Now you can do a lot with shadows, but there are a lot of things you cannot do with shadows. When I was younger, I used to like to, to, to make use my hand and make all them little animals and stuff like that on the wall have, through the shadows and have people try to figure out what kind of animal it was and things like that. You can do that and you can have fun with shadows. But the one thing that's very difficult to do is to look at a shadow and learn from that shadow the color of a building, the substance of the thing that's being represented by the shadow. And this is why in chapter 10, verse 1, we have now the reality or the substance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than something that was merely a shadow of things to come. The light has now came and it is able to bring perfection to all of us. Now, God makes us perfect in the sense that he makes us complete. Now, there has to be this idea of perfection. Otherwise, the whole Christian life doesn't make any sense. If you have gone to sleep and had a dream before, you know that there are times where you dream uh, certain events are taking place and you're having such a good time that when you wake up, you just wish you could have got to the end of the dream. But you're unable to because you're awake now. Or you've heard of sculptors or painters who were very good with their particular talent and in sculpting something, they could pull a beautiful expression out of rock or out of clay and then something happens and they end up paralyzed and they're immobile or they pass away and it's left unfinished. And so you spend the rest of your time looking at that saying, oh, I wonder what that would have been like had he been able or she been able to finish it. So with, with each of us, the scripture says that our God is faithful to continue the good work that he's begun in us. So he doesn't leave us half done. His job through the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to a place of perfection. But he could, have, he could not have done that through the blood of bulls and goats. So that's why Christ came in the fullness of time. Well, verse 2 says that the worshipers would never have been able to rid themselves of the, conscious, the conscience of sins had the blood of Jesus not come. Now, that's true. The best thing that ever happened to you is to become a Christian and have your sins forgiven. Because now you can put your head down on the pillow every night and realize 
that no matter how bad you were in your past life and however bad you are yet today, the blood of Jesus Christ is still able to bring forgiveness to you and effect on your behalf a forgiveness and a cleansing and a purging that is as beautiful as the day you first met the Lord. Now that's important to know. It is the burden of the consciousness of sin and shame and guilt that causes a lot of people to end up medicated, commit suicide, don't want to go out the house, keep the shades pulled down, don't want to be around people. But there's a happiness that comes to us when we realize that even though I have imperfections and flaws, he loves me far more than I ever will realize. And that, that'll get you out of bed every day with a smile on your face. To, to know that, that he's loved you so much that he's given his only begotten son. And that's why verse 3 goes on to say uh, the, the sacrifices brought the remembrance of sins every year. So let's, let's remember what happened. In, in the Old Testament, there was a day in Leviticus 16 that's dealt with called the, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the priest could go into the Holy of Holies make an offering for the children of Israel's sins. And for that, for that fleeting moment, the Israelites could feel good about themselves. It's like, oh, sins have been dealt with. The highest day, the holy day has come. But then an hour later, you're feeling bad again. And then the next day, you have to wait 364 more days in order for the high priest to go in there one more time. But someone had asked me, I think last week, in one of the other churches, they said, well, Pastor, wasn't there some kind of a tradition where these priests, when they went into the Holy of Holies because of judgment, uh, they, they, they had to have some kind of a rope or something around their leg when they went in there just in case they fell dead under the judgment. And, and there certainly are traditions and teachings that, that say that, that by the time of the, the Lord was here, that that Day of Atonement was so holy that the priest had bells on his attire and he would go into that Holy of Holies to make that, that offering of that blood and sprinkle that in there. And as long as they heard the bells ringing, they knew the priest was still alive. But if the bell stopped ringing, they knew he was judged by God and he had died. And that's what the rope around his leg was for because nobody wanted, nobody dared go in there and get him. So they're going to have to pull him out. And that would have been the end of that. So, this day was a high holy day, very important to the children of Israel. But as you can see in verse 3, the remembrance of sins continued. Well, verse 4 speaks of the impossibility of the blood of bulls and goats in taking away sins. You say, well, why did God ordain that these animals be offered? Because he's God and he can ordain whatever he wants. But he knew in the beginning this was only supposed to be temporary. Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world and even things in your life. Maybe you've built things or done things that were only supposed to last for a season. You moved to a town, moved to a place, started a job. You say, I'm going to do this job just for a season until another door opens and I'm going to do something else. But you already have in the back of your mind, this is temporary. Well, God had this in his mind with regard to the scheme of redemption. There was going to come a point where Jesus would need to be born into this world, where God would need to become flesh. So the, the redemption that came with Christ, that was not plan B, okay? That was not plan B. Don't think 
that the moment Adam and Eve sinned, the God who was up there holding the playbook, he threw it down on heaven's floor and said, oh, what are we going to do now? Gosh, no, they already knew this, this stuff was understood from the beginning. So verse five, for this reason, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you prepared a body. That, that is to say that the sacrifices were not supposed to be eternal or permanent, but a body had been prepared even before the foundation of the world. So in verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have had no pleasure. He tolerated them. He ordained them. But what ultimately is going to bring the Lord pleasure is the sacrifice of his own son. Isaiah 53, he offered himself an offering for sin, a sin offering. Remember that. He's a, a sin offering. Well, verse 7. And as you can see, Paul is writing this, so it's in the first person. It's almost... It's as though the Lord Jesus Christ himself is testifying. Then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Well, now these are, these are quotations from Old Testament uh, verses. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin you would not or did not desire, neither had pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. What was the first? The first covenant. What's the second? The New Testament. Jesus came in order to do away with what was temporary to provide something that was permanent, because what is permanent is the thing that has pleased God from all eternity. Now, we had to offer animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, as I said, because God ordained it going all the way back to when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And the scripture uses this kind of language. The, the smell of the animal, the aroma, was a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God. So God was pleased with that in the sense, this is what I require of you at this time. So God's requirements sometimes have changed. In the Old Testament, you couldn't eat those things that you enjoy eating called shrimp, different kinds of seafood, we can eat them now under the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, you were supposed to avoid pork. Yeah, you can eat that now because Paul said all meats are to be received with thanksgiving. Yeah, so understand that the, the permanence comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to recognize the certain things that were temporary. In the Old Covenant, the ceremonies and the rituals were temporary. So preachers today don't have to walk around and dress like priests, like they did under the Old Covenant, because in Christ we're all priests. Under the Old Covenant, only men could be priests. Under the New Covenant, men and women are of the priesthood. Under the Old Covenant, everybody had to go to one location for worship, and the sacrifice of their sins. That's Jerusalem. Under the new covenant, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of. Things like, like these are very important to know. Look at verse number 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified. Now, this is a, a very important scripture to me. <clears throat> Because this scripture helped 
deliver me from some teaching in the, the church where I was raised in. I was, I come up in a denomination called the Church of God in Christ. It's the largest Pentecostal denomination in North America, predominantly African American. And it was started by a man named Bishop Mason out of Tennessee, down in that area. That's where the headquarters are. Well, in the Church of God in Christ organization, they teach that all who are believers, born again and love the Lord, that they should be sanctified, that there is a secondary blessing after salvation in which you need to be sanctified. So they would have people praying for that, tearing for that. Well, the Methodist Church, that's what they taught from John Wesley. That's where this comes from. It's a Wesleyan doctrine, and it's still on the Wesleyan books to this day, the doctrine of sanctification. So it was a belief that you could have an experience with God that would make you holier than you were, even though you were now Christian. And I, I can remember as a teenager, they'd have us praying for that. But then once I graduated from high school, went overseas, was stationed in Japan, had different people now discipling me, was learning more and more about the scriptures, Hebrews 10 and 10 set me free because I realized that by the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, I was sanctified through what he did at Calvary. So this is a good illustration of how as a Christian, as you grow in grace and in knowledge, certain teachings and beliefs that once had a hold on you, they just fall away. It's like having leather or, or uh, some kind of cloth restraints on you and then somebody puts the fire on you and sell you those restraints, they just kind of evaporate and melt away. And that's what happened to me. Certain beliefs that I had, they just fell by the wayside. Now, that's not to say these people that loved me and helped me as a kid, that they weren't sincere. They were very sincere. And they were good Christians in the sense of what they understood Christianity to be. And they were devout. And I have no doubt that many of them old saints have gone on to be with the Lord and gone to heaven. But I'm under no illusion now that it's possible to be sincere and still yet on certain subjects be sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. So sanctification then is something Jesus does. In verse 11, every priest that stands every day and offers oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament priest every day, six days a week. Two times a day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. There's a goat, there's a bull, there's a, a ram, there's a lamb, there's a turtle dove, there's some kind of animal being offered, there's meal offering, grain offerings, every kind of offering you can think of that's going up to God every single day. And according to verse 11, these same sacrifices offered continually can't do anything for your sins. Now, you consider in the world we live today, we have enough traditions and beliefs in many of our Christian sects that if, if we just started enumerating all of them right now, you'd be surprised at the number of things that, that go on. Whether it's somebody walking down an aisle swinging an incense thing, you know, that's somehow going to make things holy, or, or whether it's someone with a, a painting or a picture or, or a, uh, how would I say, a stained glass 
window with pictures of the apostles or something like that in there, and people honestly believe those things are holy. All of these things, just traditions. But every, every, every church, every sect, every group has tradition. I have tradition. My tradition is in midweek services. I just come in and stand up and start teaching. The other people don't do it like that. Got to sing two or three songs. Or maybe you've got to have two or three people testify. I just start cold and just go right into the teaching. Now, I could start off with a song. However, in some places, everybody, they don't sing well. So that may not actually inspire me in the, in the teaching. Okay, let's get off of that. Okay, verse, verse number 12 then. But this man, talking about the Lord, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on he sat down on the right hand of God. Now this means that the one sacrifice he made does not need to be duplicated. Now that's important. There are people who believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is duplicated each time we share the Lord's Supper. That, that it doesn't work that way. The Lord's Supper is a memorial or remembrance of his death on the cross and how he paid for our sins. So what God is after then, he, he's looking into your life, into your heart to see the reflection of his son's face. That, that's what he wants. He wants to look into your eyes and see the image of his own dear son. And he responds to us on that basis. Mr. Spurgeon, who was a 19th century preacher, he gave an illustration one time. He said, it's like a good woman who, whenever a poor sailor came to her door, whoever he might be, would always be made welcome by her. Because she said, I think I see my own dear son who has many years been away at sea, and I have not heard from him. But whenever I see a sailor, I think of him, and I treat the stranger kindly for my son's sake. So that's what Jesus has done for us. He's made it possible for us to boldly approach the throne of the Lord, and because of his son's sake, God shows his love, his mercy, his compassion, all of that for you and for me. So don't ever feel like you don't have a right to talk to God or to pray Boldly, you do, because of your relationship with God. And, and some of you, I've only learned in recent days, some of you really know how to pray. Oh, my goodness. Tiffany came home and told me here not too long ago, she said, you should have heard Darren pray. I said, really? That's what she said. Verse 13, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus is presently seated. It says he sat down. This implies that after his resurrection, he had to go back to heaven. So this is where we get the teaching of the ascension from. The doctrine of the ascension. The Lord was called away according to Acts chapter 1, the last part of Luke chapter 24. He had all of his disciples together on the Mount of Olives as Jesus was discoursing with them. Suddenly he began to float and go into the sky. The clouds received him out of sight and he went to the right hand of the Father. And his ministry now is there as an intercessor for you and for me. 
Well, when are all of his enemies going to be made his footstool? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So 1 Thessalonians 4 says, one day Jesus is going to return. The dead in Christ are going to arise. We which are alive and remain are going to be called away to be with him. We're going up to heaven. That's what the scripture says. We're going to be gathered together with him. So when that occurs, down here on planet Earth, there's going to be some bad things taking place. Book of Revelation is going to start happening. Some chapters from Ezekiel are going to be fulfilled. It's going to be war in the Middle East. Some nations are going to try to invade Israel. Jesus is going to have all of his disciples with him there in heaven. And the scripture says in Revelation 6, he's going to go over to the throne. And the father's going to have a book. It's going to have all these seals on them. And Jesus is going to start breaking the seals. And when he breaks the seals, stuff is going to start happening down here. And the scripture talks about the seven sealed book. It speaks of the seven trumpets. It speaks of the seven bowls of wrath that are going to be poured out into the earth. And when they're poured out into the earth, there's going to be a lot of tribulation. There's going to be a lot of death. In the middle of all of that, the Lord still will be working to bring people to a saving knowledge of the gospel because there will be a time when people who refuse to serve the Lord are going to be told if you want to buy and sell, if you want to go to the market, if you're going to head down to Steve's grocery store and buy you some food, you're going to have to have a mark on you somewhere on your body to identify who you are. And, and Revelation 13 calls this the number or the name of the beast. And all those who don't have that, Scripture says, they won't be able to buy or sell. So there are going to be a lot of people that's going to starve to death and lose their life during the tribulation period. And as the book of Revelation says, there will be those people who died that way. They're going to be around the throne of, the, of uh, God. And Jesus is going to be there and nourish them because these will be those who came out of great tribulation and who starved and who were thirsty. But at the end... The Bible speaks of a great war of Armageddon. Jesus and all of his saints come back to earth. They defeat the Antichrist. And then the Lord sets up his reign here on planet earth for 1,000 years. 1,000 years. At the end, or I should say during that 1,000 year period, Scripture says we'll be priests with God. Each one of us will have some kind of reign or dominion or assignment that he gives to us. The Bible says in Corinthians, I believe, don't you know that you will judge angels? So you're going to be in a position where God's going to use you. At the end of a thousand years, Satan will be loosed for a season. The Bible says, doesn't tell us how long, but it says he's going to gather the nations together again and deceive them. There's going to be another war, the war of Gog and Magog. Scripture says supernatural fire comes down from heaven, destroys them all. And then John sees the books open. Then he's looking at these names. Whoever's name is not in the book of life is not going to be going over into heaven. That's when he looks up and he says, I see new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride ready to be married to the bridegroom. And at that point, all enemies will have been dealt with. So that is just a brief sketch of the things that are going to take place. Because the scripture says the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Will be death. Yep. Look at verse 14, Hebrews 10. For by one offering he hath perfected forever 
them that are sanctified. See, those that are sanctified. That takes us back to verse 10, that verse I told you that meant so much to me. By one offering, he's perfected. So if, if he's perfected us through his sanctifying work, there's nothing secondary I need to do to improve upon my holy state. I'm holy not because I do holy things. I'm holy because the scripture says I'm a saint. So each of the epistles begin with to the saints at Corinth, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saint at Philippi. We could say to the saints in Hebron, to the saints in Fair County, to the saints in Red Cloud, to the saints in Fran, to the, to the saints down in Russell, Kansas. Anywhere we want to say where they're Christians, we can designate them that way because a saint is someone who is in Christ. That's what a saint is, someone in Christ. Each of you, even if you don't feel like you are as uh, good a person as Mother Teresa was, okay? Goodness doesn't come to us because of what we do. It comes to us because who we're related to. If you're related to Christ, if you're in Christ, Scripture says you're a saint. That, that's all it takes. That, that's all it takes. Verse 15, whereof... The Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. He's quoting Jeremiah, and he's telling us that he's going to do this future. That means that at the time that Jeremiah is prophesying this, these things have not occurred. These laws have not been placed in their hearts and in their minds in the manner in which they're in ours. Now understand this. Romans 1 says that creation testifies about God. Romans 2 goes on to tell us that man is inexcusable before God. Inside of every human being, since we're made in the image of God, there are certain core beliefs that no matter where you go on this planet, everybody understands, everybody shares, even if they don't necessarily adhere to them in the way that they should. Everyone knows you are not supposed to lie. That's, that's every culture on the planet. The most pagan culture you can think of know that you're supposed to tell the truth. Everybody knows that you're not supposed to sleep with someone else's spouse. That's any culture. Go in the jungles of South America, go into the, the forests of Laos, go into the culture even of a polygamous group of people. If one man has several wives or one woman has several husbands, all of them know nobody else is supposed to be with what is mine. That, that's, that's embedded in the human situation. So we say that the Ten Commandments then essentially are in the heart of every human being, even though they fight against them. Now, they, they, they may not know anything about honoring a particular day, and they may have a different understanding of uh, worshiping other gods, but those core beliefs about not killing people, not lying, not committing adultery, people kind of know those things, no matter where you go on this planet. And this is why when we come back here to verse 16, the Lord speaks about the covenant in which he's going to put his law in their minds and in their hearts. If, he, if he's going to do that, he's going to do this in a special way. And that's because the spirit of God is going to enter into 
believers. The Holy Spirit. And Jesus is able to say, in the day that you stand before people, don't try to rehearse what you're going to say, but the Spirit of God will put his words in your mouth to help you. He'll give you a mouth of wisdom to help you to speak to people. Verse 17. Still the quotation continues. In their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Thank the Lord. Now We have the unseemly habit of remembering when everybody does something wrong to us. And I've told you before, we all believe in forgiveness, especially when we need it. Yeah. Oh, I believe in mercy and compassion because I do I need some right now. But if mercy and compassion is something that you need, oh, I need to pray about that. I need to pray. I just, I don't know if I'm going to give all of that to you that I so richly deserve myself. But the scripture says that having been forgiven of your sins, you give forgiveness. Having experienced the compassion of God, you share compassion with people. Now, we don't have the ability to push delete and forget every cross word that's been spoken to us, every evil deed that's been done to us. But we do have the ability to react to our thoughts and we can control our reactions and our responses. Just because you get angry over what you're thinking about, that does not mean you need to go and share the two cents that you want to give to somebody right now. Mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can put a muzzle on your mouth if you desire to. You can. The scripture says the tongue is an unruly fire and it's set on a path of destruction. With one conversation, you can, just like a fire taking over the terrain of Northern California or somewhere across the, the Great Plains, you can scorch a relationship with a few words. Just utterly devour it. And now you've got to spend the rest of your time using words that are seasoned with grace to try to get something to grow back so you can have a relationship with that person again. Because what you said before destroyed it. Yeah, this, okay, this is scripture, even if you don't like it now. This is, this is all scripture. Mm -hmm. It's in the Bible here. Okay, verse 18 then. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Okay, now we learned before that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Because if you don't have any rules about right and wrong, then you can't tell anybody what they're doing is right or wrong. But here, we need to know that with God, God believes that virtue should be rewarded with good things, but he also believes that sin deserves punishment. So virtue deserves reward and sin deserves punishment. Since sin deserves punishment, there has to be something to alleviate the punishment for all of those that come and accept Christ. And what is that? It's the death of his son. He receives the penalty. That, that's what it is. Now, there are people today that will tell you that the idea of somebody bearing the sins of other people on the cross, that that is a fiction. It's not true. And people try to change the way they explain the atonement. I'm telling you right now, if you have to change or alter your belief in the atonement and the way it's designed, you also have to change and alter your belief in sin and how it originated. Yeah, because Jesus had to die for sin individually. And I, I'll give you a good Illustration of that. Let, let's suppose somebody owed you some money and <clears throat> they owe you two hundred dollars. And you decided 
that you wanted your money. And so somebody knew that John was mad at somebody because John wants his money. But another party steps in for the one who's in debt and says, you know what, I'm going to pay this money for you. And John, he collects it and he's happy and it doesn't make him any difference where the money comes from so long as the debt's been paid. He don't care if it comes from a friend, a cousin of the person who borrowed the money. He just wants it settled. So it's settled. It's a monetary issue. But it's different if it's a, if it's a penal thing, some kind of criminality involved. If a judge is in court and he says to someone, okay, you're sentenced to 30 years in prison, then somebody else can't come up and say, you know what, I think I want to do his time for him. Because the judge is saying, you've committed the crime. You're the one that's done what's wrong. So you're the one that's going to have to go to jail. And this is exactly what God did with respect to the, to, to the sending of his son. Each one of us were guilty. Each one of us were deserving of some kind of judgment that comes from the bar of God, but rather than him sentencing us all individually, he permitted his son to come and die in our place and receive the guilt, the shame, the burden of the iniquity, the punishment that should have come to each one of us so that we can now say we are acquitted. See, that, that's how it works. Not that we weren't guilty. The charges have simply been dropped. And God doesn't impute any unrighteousness or any iniquity to you. It's not that I don't have sin, not that I did not have sin, but it's very simply that now the Lord simply has said, because you believe in my son, uh, there's no charges against you, and we're not dealing with double jeopardy here. You're forgiven. See, you're forgiven. That is what the Lord does in this relationship. And verse 18 again, where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. So there, there needs to be no offering of a ram a goat, a bull, and I'm happy that the Lord has so made a way for each one of us that when we come to him, we can expect to receive much more than we ever wanted. He's given us so much forgiveness, folks. I, I wish, I, I, maybe I don't, maybe I shouldn't know, but I was going to say I wish I knew how many sins in my lifetime thus far have needed to be forgiven. But it probably would hurt me if the Lord had to, had to tell me how many. It probably would be better if I, if I asked the Lord, Lord, tell me how many sins he or she has had to have forgiven. See, I'd probably feel better if I knew about yours rather than having to know about mine. And I, I'd hit that button. I'd say, Lord, could you please tell me how many sins of Mr. Stephen Wilkie you've had to forgive? And then, I mean, that computer would start going, the numbers would start rolling. Then, thousand years later, that thing's still rolling. I'm saying, Lord, is there ever an end to this, you see? <laughs> but, but it's a blessing to know that God, God does forgive us of our sins, and I'm, I'm quite happy uh, about that. Uh, Alexander the Great one time had a man who was a, an attendant to him uh, when he was doing his traveling across the earth, taking over everything, and he had told the gentleman... He said, you can have whatever you choose to ask as a reward for all of your valor. Well, that, that, that man, he was quite happy. So he asked for a sum of money so large that Alexander's treasurer would not give it to him until he first saw the king. And upon seeing the king, the king smiled and said, it's true that it's too much for him to ask, but it's not too much for me, the king, to give. 
And he said, I admire the fact that he believes so much in me that I'll give it to him, give him all that he asked for. Now, now that's, that's, a, that's a gracious thing from a man like him who was a tyrant. When you consider our God, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Scripture says his love is now shed abroad in our hearts. We go to him, and I'm telling you, you can never ask too much. You can never ask too much because you're never going to break God's bank, and you're never going to cause God to run out of compassion and mercy for you. And even though you may do things that disappoint a whole lot of people, God's still going to be there sitting at the right hand or sitting at the throne, and he's going to be waiting on you to boldly come and enter into his presence to talk to him. And that is mighty good news. Amen? Mighty good news. Okay, so what I want to do now is pray, and then I got one other thing I want to do real quick. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you. We appreciate you. We're so grateful. We honor your name. Your word is powerful, Lord. Thank you for sending your son down the cross for us. And so, Lord, help us to go deeper and deeper and deeper as we look into the epistle to the Hebrews. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.